when young people are coerced or manipulated into sharing images as this young person was in Ohio, using the law that was designed to protect her. It is one way that prosecutors and law enforcement really take the law and and turn it on its head to further victimize young people who have already been the subject of sexual exploitation or victimization. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. In a recent incident in Columbus, Ohio, an 11-year-old girl was manipulated into sending explicit photos to an adult. After law enforcement was called by the girl's father, a police officer told the father his daughter could face porn charges for her actions. So how do we protect our children who are victims of these kind of crimes? And what changes need to be made within our laws? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll explore the misuse of sexual exploitation laws against child victims, advocating for children's rights, and what needs to change within our legal system and inside our police departments. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by attorney Ria Saha Shah. She is the Senior Managing Director of the Juvenile Law Center. In her role as a Senior Managing Director, Ria serves on the organization's management team and is a leader in the Juvenile Law Center's programmatic justice work. Since the beginning of her legal career, Ria has engaged in litigation, policy advocacy, and amicus efforts to reduce the harm of juvenile and criminal legal system. Welcome to the show, Ria. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with you and your work for the Juvenile Law Center. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and what the Juvenile Law Center does? Sure. So I started my legal career with Juvenile Law Center. It's an organization that's been around almost 50 years, founded in 1975 by four Temple Law School graduates. And it really started as a legal services organization for children, where the lawyers at the time were representing kids in court for pretty much anything that might land them in court, whether it was um, emancipation or truancy or expulsion or child welfare system involvement or juvenile legal system involvement. And over time, it really evolved into a very different organization. You know, our roots are very much in direct service, but our work now is really focused on systemic advocacy and, and impact litigation and change on a much broader level. So we're a national organization based in Philadelphia. Our uh, mission is to fight for the rights dignity, equity, and opportunity for young people to reduce the harm of the child welfare system and the juvenile and criminal legal systems to limit their reach and ultimately abolish them, um, just acknowledging all the harm that they cause so that young people can thrive. Well, let's talk about a particular instance that happened recently in Columbus, Ohio, where an 11-year-old girl was somehow convinced to send uh inappropriate pictures of herself to a man that was soliciting them. But yet when the police came to the door, she might've been accused. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah. So I um, learned about this case much like the rest of the world. I learned by watching a viral video um, on social media that was shared numerous times. Um, and I think that the the way in which this 
video spread really shows the outrageous nature of it. So as you said, it was a father who had called the police. He said that his daughter, who was 11 years old, was somehow manipulated or coerced into sending uh, sexually explicit photographs of herself to an adult. And he called the police for help and also to explain the harm to his young daughter. And when the police came to the door and asked him about it, he explained that it was an adult who had coerced his daughter into sending these messages. And the police officer said, well, you know, she created these these photos and so she's creating child pornography. She could be charged with felony child pornography. And that actually is the law in Ohio. The child minor that creates pornography can be charged. Is that right? It is how the law is written. It's not the intent of the law, however. I think that, you know, if you look at the legislative intent of child pornography laws, you know, dating back hundreds of years even, these laws were designed to protect children. They were protect, designed to protect children from any kind of sexual exploitation. And particularly in the circumstance we're thinking about here, this law was designed to protect this young 11-year-old. And instead, by the police officers, it was being used really as a weapon to criminalize her. That just doesn't seem right. Is this happen frequently? I'm not sure I would use the word frequently, but it is common. I think that what happens is that often police officers, prosecutors, they'll use these laws in a way to threaten young people to um, enter an admission or to plead, essentially, to a different offense. And so we saw this happening quite a bit in the early 2000s, like kind of on the once camera phones became very readily available for young people um, and for everybody, we saw a lot of legislation across the country being passed around um, sexting. And so this was new criminal laws that were created to criminalize the consensual sharing of images between teenagers. And this is something that probably dates back to the beginning of time where teenagers are exploring their sexuality and engaging in, you know, consensual behaviors with one another. But once these images are on a cell phone, it's much more likely that the images can be shared more broadly than they were intended. Well, certainly. That brings us to sexual exploitation laws. How are these kind of laws being used to hurt child victims? Right. So in the case of these other pieces of legislation, what we were seeing is that young people were being told by prosecutors, we can charge you with child pornography unless you plead down to another kind of offense. And so rather than going to trial or having some sort of other process, they would plead to an offense and then enter the criminal system. Similarly, when young people are coerced or manipulated into sharing images as this young person was in Ohio, using the law that was designed to protect her, it is one way that prosecutors and law enforcement really take the law and, and turn it on its head to further victimize young people who have already been the subject of sexual exploitation or victimization. What's going on there? I mean, that just, 
do they not have the right kind of training? Is this a different perspective that, that officers have? How, how could that possibly be? Well, I, I don't know that training is the right response. I think that this father, in this case, reached out for help. And the police's responsibility and duty is not first to provide help. Their first responsibility is to protect and to punish. And that's what they did in this case. They came with the notion that somebody was doing something harmful and and came to the conclusion that the person that was doing something harmful was the young person who was creating these images. I mean, the police, they doubled down on it. Even after the father, in the video, the father says, you know, how can you be serious? She's 11 years old or something to that effect. And the police are like, well, she's the one that's creating the images. She's the one that's sharing these images. And it's true, but we have to look a little bit deeper. And I think that that's the part that we you know, that law enforcement is unwilling to do, especially in that moment, to look a little bit deeper to identify, like, really, why is an 11-year-old engaging in this kind of behavior? There must be something more going on here. And to jump to a criminalization is going to open a whole different set of concerns and problems and trauma for this, this young person. Let's just jump back to first year law school here in, in your first semester of criminal law and talk about how minors can't form intent. And how can a minor possibly form an intent if by law we recognize that minors can't form an intent to, con- to commit a crime? Well, that was common law. So in uh, common law, children between the ages of 7 and 14 were presumed to have the ability to form intent, but shouldn't be dealt with criminally. And under age seven, were presumed to not be able to form intent. The law has really changed quite a bit in the last several hundred years. So in 1899, when the first juvenile court was created, it was established to have a different path for young people who were charged with criminal offenses with the acknowledgement that young people were different from from adults. They shouldn't be treated with the same level of criminality. They shouldn't be branded in the same way. They shouldn't have this harsh process and this adversarial process. Instead, juvenile court was supposed to be confidential. It was supposed to be rehabilitative. And it was a much more paternalistic view of dealing with children who had engaged in criminal offenses. So even then, when that was the primary motivation of juvenile court, there was still an idea that young people could form intent to commit a crime, but they should be handled differently. That how we respond to those um, behaviors should be um, dealt with differently. And in the last hundred years, since the first juvenile court was was created, the way that we treat children has changed very significantly. Our juvenile criminal system or juvenile legal system much more closely mirrors our adult criminal system than it does the first juvenile court of 1899. I mean, now we are pushing young people into adult court. We are subjecting them to very lengthy sentences, mandatory sentences, life without parole sentences, 
And even the punishments within juvenile court are extremely severe, and the consequences of juvenile court involvement can last last a person's entire lifetime. There are enormous barriers to education and employment, um, housing, all sorts of things that come with a criminal conviction likewise come with a juvenile adjudication in, in juvenile court. So I think this idea that, you know, juvenile court is no big deal and the records go away when you're 18 years old, none of that remains true anymore. So what we have now is a much more punitive juvenile system than we once did. And so there have been changes, significant changes in how we are thinking about children that have gone both ways. So we we also have had an enormous amount of progress in thinking about how young people should be treated and an acknowledgement from the U.S. Supreme Court with an understanding of neuroscience and adolescent development research that children are different from adults. So that's common knowledge. That's something that we all knew. <laughs> We've all been children before. Some of us have children. You know, I'm not the same person that I was when I was 15 years old. And we all grow and and mature and our brains develop in ways that allow us to appreciate the risks of our behaviors and the consequences of our behaviors in very different ways now as adults than, than as children. And so how children are viewed now under the U.S. Supreme Court case law, especially when it comes to adult sentencing, is that they have diminished culpability. So it's not so much about intent as it is how we respond to their behaviors and that their the consequences for their actions should not be as severe as they are for adults. Well, Rhea, at this time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by attorney Riha Saha Shah. She is the Senior Managing Director of, Ju- of the Juvenile Law Center. And we've been discussing sexual exploitation laws and the changes in the juvenile justice system. Well, how did we get to this point? I mean, if if there's been such a dramatic shift from the, let's just call it the Norman Rockwell style of juvenile uh, hall to uh, what we're now experiencing, is it because of school shootings and the 
over-sexualization of, of children and the, all of the ills of society that people complain about? What, what's happening? Well, I think we got to where we are because we became a much more punitive society. Our response to everything is about punishment. I mean, we are 50 years into the mass incarceration era. The changes in legislation that pushed young people into adult court, primarily Black and Brown youth, into adult court, especially during the super predator era, that led to kind of the mass incarceration that we see today. And so in the 1960s and 70s, there was a big push to provide the same constitutional protections that adults receive in their criminal proceedings to young people. And this was an enormous win. I mean, it was an acknowledgement that the juvenile court system was an adversarial process, but it was a win because it meant that kids couldn't just be taken before a judge and a judge could just lock somebody up for an indefinite amount of time without any kind of notice or any kind of process or any kind of um, right to appeal. And so in 1967, in a case called In Ray Galt out of Arizona, the U.S. Supreme Court finally gave constitutional protections to young people in juvenile court. And that kind of started the constitutionalization of juvenile court. But in the 80s and 90s, when there was an increase in juvenile violent crime, and then a subsequent kind of media attention to young people that were engaging in these behaviors that ultimately actually very steadily declined very shortly after this the peak. Um, so juvenile crime was at its peak in the early 80s and, and 90s, early 90s, and then it very um, swiftly came down and has been on the decline ever since. But at that time, there was a strong movement on both sides of the aisle to to enact legislation that was that were get tough policies, so tough on crime policies that pushed young people into adult court. So now every single state has some mechanism that requires young people to be tried as adults. Um, nearly every single state has mandatory sentencing laws that young people can be subject to. It was only in 2005 that we overturned the death penalty for children. Um, and only very recently were mandatory life without parole sentences prohibited for children. And so I think that we have, we have made an enormous amount of progress in kind of how we think about children and how we understand the science and the common sense that goes along with it. And simultaneously, we are very punitive and our reactions to things are punitive. So rather than investing in community supports and investing in the things that we know prevent involvement in criminal offenses, our, what we invest in is, is increased police presence and increased um, prisons and, and jails and all of these things that really push more and more people into the criminal system. Well, let's give you a magic wand today. If you could make changes and solve the problems of the world, what would you do? All the problems of the world. I, I Well, at least the ones that relate to juvenile, <laughs> juveniles and the juvenile justice system. You know, as I said at the outset, our mission as an organization is to reduce the harm of these systems and ultimately abolish them. We invest so much money and people power into locking children up and removing them from their homes and their families. 
on both the child welfare side as well as in the juvenile and criminal systems. And I think that, you know, if I were able to wave a magic wand, what I would really want to see is that our investments are in building up communities, in providing safe spaces for people, in providing equitable income for people, and all the things that we know create safer spaces and and less crime, frankly, building those things up and providing for universal education, because those are the things that ensure that young people can remain with their communities and in their homes. And, um, you know, it is a severe amount of trauma when a young person's life is disrupted and they're pushed into the criminal system. And it seems like something that is very minuscule, especially for like minor things that young people get caught up into the system for, but it's really not. I mean, having that contact with police is is really traumatic. Being processed and um, incarcerated is extraordinarily traumatic. Having your education disrupted and your home life disrupted is very traumatic and being removed from your family for even a short amount of time is traumatic. And then coming back home, is very challenging. I mean, the coming back home after having spent a significant amount of time in a juvenile placement facility or a juvenile detention center means that the young person may have missed school to the point where they don't have certain number of credits or their credits that they received while they were in school in the detention center don't transfer over. You know, there's just so many things that come from court involvement and police contact that if I were to, you know, think about how to solve these problems, it would really be to build up the communities so that young people can be home. Well, thank you for that. Well, it's time for another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with attorney Ria Saha Shah. She is the Senior Managing Director of the Juvenile Law Center, the Juvenile Law Center. And we've been talking about how to solve some of these problems. But what needs to happen in a legal system in order to make this work better? Obviously, these trauma events uh, are, are have a big effect on children. What can be done to lessen that in court? You know, the way we approach young people's contact with the court system can can really be dramatically shifted. We can think about alternatives to incarceration that don't require, you know, Intervention is is one thing. Incarceration is a is a totally different thing. And so there may be behaviors that require intervention. You know, children, I'm I'm not going to discount. Children do sometimes engage in extremely harmful behaviors that can that may require some level of accountability. But the only way we know how to hold people accountable 
is to incarcerate them. And that has not been proven to actually hold people accountable, deter people from committing future offenses, or provide the kind of rehabilitation that it purports to. And so thinking about interventions that are alternatives to incarceration, and there are places around the country that have programs where young people um, are able to engage in alternatives to incarceration through their community supportive services to engage in, you know, community service and other types of of opportunities that give back to their communities and and restore the harm that they may have caused. You know, there are alternatives that can be addressed that without actual removal from the family home. And one of the issues that face minors is human trafficking. What do you think that regular everyday people can do as they walk through life to spot human trafficking with children and what resources are available? That's not an area that our office is currently working on. And so I'm not an expert in this. I think that, you know, there's certainly things that the experts will tell you that, you know, you should be aware of the things that you see and all of that. I think that from a legal perspective, I think that what the law should do is not criminalize children who are um, subject to to um, human trafficking. And I think that often the sex, sexual exploitation laws that we talked about at the outset, you know, sometimes they are used also against victims of human trafficking. And it's really important to, to make sure that the intervention doesn't look like criminalization and incarceration. Right. Well, Rhea, we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time to ask for your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners to reach out to the Juvenile Law Center. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You can reach me at rshajlc.org and learn more about our organization at jlc.org. As I mentioned, we do work on behalf of young people in both the child welfare system as well as in the juvenile and criminal system. I think that um, this issue spans both systems, actually, and, and young people, sometimes the interventions can mean that they get pushed into the child welfare system and and we didn't talk about that today, but that's definitely another place that can result in a lot of trauma and harm to young people as they're removed from their families and communities. So I, I hope that we can come out of this with an understanding of how interventions can look different for young people. Well, thank you. And as we wrap up, I'd like to thank our guest, Ria Saha Shah, for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, here are a few of my thoughts about today's topic. I mean, it's, this is a hard topic to deal with, especially in light of the Hamas invasion in Israel and the slaughter of children and babies. It's difficult here in the United States on a different scale, but still damaging and injurious to our children who deserve our protection because they can't protect themselves. These types of laws need to be changed. The understandings of the way that they work need to be changed. Police departments need to be educated and perhaps a society, we need to shift from being, as Rhea so aptly put it, a punishment-oriented society and start being a little more forgiving. Well, that's it for today's rant on today's topic. Let me know what you think. And if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at thelegaltalknetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember... When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. 
produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.